You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Howdy everybody, CJ here, your Renaissance man. In this new dark age in which we seem to find ourselves in increasingly darkening times. But, on the bright side, I am back with another dose of Dangerous History. And in this episode, I'm going to be speaking to good friend Brett Vinat, who for a little while longer is going to still be the host of the School Sucks podcast, although not for very much longer because... In case you don't know, if you don't follow his work closely, he is actually going to be hanging up the School Sucks podcast. Now, it's not the end of Brett Vinat as a public figure and content creator, thankfully, but he is going to be ending that particular show after 12 years of doing it. And you know, I've been doing this thing a while. I've been podcasting for a little over seven years now, but Brett really is OG, and as I mentioned in this episode in talking to him, he was one of the biggest influences and inspirations on me that ultimately led me to start the Dangerous History Podcast. So he's going to be wrapping up School Sucks very soon, and I very much wanted to talk to him one more time while he's still technically the host of that show. To catch up with him, as I haven't talked with him since last October, and to kind of do a retrospective and look back on his time creating that show, some of the ups and downs, some of the highlights, some of the lessons learned that he's going to be bringing with him on future projects going forward, and also for roughly, I don't know, the first half hour or so of our conversation, we're really just sort of catching up on how we're doing and how we're dealing with the ups and downs and recently increasing again craziness out there in the world. So I was very glad to be able to snag him for a conversation. He's very busy right now. He's doing the last episodes of his show. He's preparing to go to the Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest soon, which I will not be attending this year because it's just bad timing for me. But Brett will be there. And again, I highly suggest that if you're able to make it to Michigan in time for the fest, you consider doing so because it's always a great time. So anyway, that's it for introductory stuff for this episode. Please enjoy my conversation with Brett Vinod. So, Brett, it is great to talk to you again. Uh, been a while. I think the last time was back in October talking about The Shining that we actually spoke. 
Oh, yeah. yeah. So how have you been lately? Pretty great. Uh, settled back into Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania after I temporarily left here last year. And I just love this place and I'm making the most of it, all things considered. How about you? Pretty good, although the week after next, school starts back up for me. Um, so that's a little bit, I don't know. <laughs> that's a little bit, uh, I'm, I'm not sure what to make of it. You know, it's, it's never fun to end summer vacation. And I'm also very unsure as to what the college will or won't be doing now with this like new round of COVID hysteria sweeping uh, much of the nation. Well, you're just like um, the college in that you know, respect. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so we'll see. I'm, I'm really fingers crossed that it, at, at least they won't, I hope, make me wear a mask when I'm teaching anymore because that was horrible and uh, it, it's no good. <laughs> So have they talked about mandating any procedures? No, I know that they ended the mask mandate for summer school at the college. Now I didn't teach any summer school, but I'm a little bit concerned that they might reverse that though, um, because of the new, you know, wave and the Delta and all this sort of thing. And, um, I don't know. I, I took it as kind of an ominous sign that I just got emailed recently, the kind of schedule we've got our first week back at work is uh, there's no classes. It's just like, you know, prep time and, and meetings and things like this. And they recently emailed me the schedule of all that stuff. And what made me a little bit concerned is that it looks like most of the meetings are over zoom, not in person. And that makes me, wonder if we're suddenly going to be told, oh, no, you do have to have masks when you're teaching in person in the classroom again. Um, you know, fingers crossed that that's not going to happen, um, you know, especially considering under the way things were last school year, they cut class sizes down drastically. They blocked off every other desk so that, you know, students were like in a checkerboard pattern in the classroom. And then I was well over six feet away from all of them. And so to me, it's like, if you're spreading people out that much and really, you know, social distancing that much, then what the hell is the point of the mask anyway? Sure. Absolutely. So how are you preparing for all of that emotionally, all that uncertainty? I, I ask because I find that uh, I am very affected by where I point my focus. And the last few weeks of my show, uh, we, uh, my friend Daryl Becker and I, we did this series, This is a Test, that was a... Um, you know, covering a lot of the subjects of this current capital C crisis. Uh, my friend Tony Myers from Grand Theft World joined us on the last one. I had a couple of conversations with Scott Hambrick from Online Great Books. And uh, yeah, there was some gloom in in those conversations. Not they, It's not to say that they weren't without any optimism, but I find like when I point my focus, uh, you know, really into to this, like I just, you know, Versus getting up and going outside and being in the sun and being in a world that feels very normal, like having to really hit the books, so to speak, on uh, what's going on out there in the world and all the implications of it, it's, it takes a toll. And I don't know, like you've obviously had, you know, a lot of time and space over the last couple months. And, you know, this is a transition that's coming. So how are you, how are you feeling about it? How are you preparing for it? Yeah, well... I was on a general uptrend in terms of my emotional health overall over the summer. I mean, it took me to, to really fully recover because 
the school year last school year was was so hard on me uh, psychologically that it took me i would say somewhere between 2 and 4 weeks after the end of the school year to even feel like i was you know back more or less to normal um in, in terms of mental health like that that's how much i i almost had like a sort of a a slow motion breakdown and and was getting um, by the end of last school year, especially getting very bad uh, bouts of depression. And so over the course of the summer, the the combination of, you know, not having to go in and teach and deal with all that. And then, you know, spending time with my kids, doing fun stuff, going on a few family trips and and catching up on rest and recharging. And also at the same time, it seemed like the, the COVID hysteria was at least, you know, largely subsiding. And then to have all of a sudden, they seem to be trying to ramp everything back up and, 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 you know, reignite the hysteria back up to early 2020 levels. Um, it, it, it's, and, and having that coincide with looking at going back to work, it, it's, it's hard. I, I've had to be really, um, disciplined in recent weeks as far as limiting my, my news consumption to avoid getting dragged back down to the level of depression I was at a few months ago. And, and I'll say, you know, I'm here in Florida, Governor DeSantis, a lot of libertarians overdo how good he is. If you actually look into him on a, on a wide range of issues, he's, he's not all that great on a lot of important things, but I'll give him credit. He's, he's been pretty solid on, on all the COVID stuff. And obviously over the last year, that's been pretty important. And so I'm not worried that the governor here at least is going to, you know, clamp down really hard, but, you know, we're all always worried, like, what are the feds going to do? But, but even setting that aside, I've been more concerned about the, the bottom up and horizontal enforcement. And just to give you, um, an example, I went to Walmart this morning, which I'm never a fan of doing, but they have a lot of stuff and I'm not super rich. So I end up there more often than I would like. And <laughs> yeah. I'm going to Walmart and there's no longer any state or local mask mandates of any sort here. And all there is, is there's a little sign on the, on the way into Walmart that says something like in accordance with the most recent CDC guidelines, Walmart strongly recommends everyone, even if you're vaccinated, wear a mask in the store. Now I went in with no mask. I did my shopping. Nobody hassled me or whatever, but I noticed that Whereas just a few weeks ago, you were going to Walmart and probably at least three quarters of people were not wearing masks mm. this morning, at least going through Walmart. It was the other way around. I'd say about three quarters of people were masked and, and that, you know, that, that made me feel not so great about the, about the near future. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, I guess where you put yourself too. Uh, I, I had an experience speaking of higher ed. Uh, a couple weeks ago, my girlfriend and I had the most delightful day in Pittsburgh. We went to the Pittsburgh Classic Grand Prix, where all of these amazing cars are brought together in this park. Uh, some of them race each other. People show them off. We had this wonderful experience with this gentleman who had a Rolls Royce who remembered us from months ago where we were photographing his car uh, in an, an entirely different town. And he's like, oh, yeah, my wife told me there was a weird couple. And I was like, that was us. We're that weird couple. So we got to sit in his car and we just had a beautiful day in the sun. And we were just really, really sailing. We went out to eat and then uh, tie in some history here. 
the Pirates used to play baseball at uh, Forbes Field, which was torn down, I think, around 1970. But there are some remnants of the field as it was a great historic location, like where they won the World Series in the final at bat in 1960 against the New York Yankees. So they've, they've left some traces of Forbes Field up, but it is uh, now overtaken by um, Pitt's campus. So we are at the wall of the stadium and we're talking to a couple of locals and they go, oh yeah, you know, the home plate is right in that building over there. So, you know, we... You know, walk into the building just enjoying this wonderful day that we've had. And we are encountered by this woman in this building by herself, masked, who is terrified of the two of us walking into the building unmasked and really does everything she can to make us feel like E.T. at the end of E.T. when, you know, <laughs> the, the government comes for E.T. And... um my girlfriend is very sweet and she's just like, Oh, well, we just want to see the home plate and, uh, would not have any of this woman's, um, rudeness. But we, we did leave because, you know, I'm not into making anyone uncomfortable, but it was, it was, uh, jarring. It was a jarring experience to go from having that day to like going into a place like that and just seeing how some institutions are choosing to, uh, frame this for themselves, frame it for the people who work there. And it it really just was a, a very temporary dark cloud on an otherwise completely beautiful day. And I think I, I go into such detail about this story just to kind of drive home the point about, you know, where we're pointing our focus. Obviously, we have a lot of things going for us, right? And we've been, I think, out ahead, maybe not the whole time. I, I you know, as I evaluate my mental and emotional performance over the last 18 months. It hasn't all been great, but, you know, we're connected to, uh, I think people who have a higher level of understanding and perspective about what's happening right now. Even though we might not be rich, we're resourceful in ways that many people are not. And it's just a, you know, a reminder to if I find myself just like I did in 2017, where I got up one day and basically said, I need to drive across this country and see this actual country and stop uh, experiencing it through the uh, computer screen filter of horrors, uh, you know, especially like social media. And so I did that. And, and now I can do a kind of micro version of that every day. Uh, I was mired down in some kind of investigation for an upcoming show the other day. And I said, you know what? Enough. And I just went out into the woods and it was uh, a complete state change, a complete reset. And that's like a very, very simple and easy thing to do, even in on, you know, like on the edge of a city where I live to just, you know, find the wilderness. And it's one of a hundred examples of how to reframe, how to get a new perspective, how to uh, change a state. And uh, I, I try not to forget those things and redirect my focus as needed to, uh, I think, maintain my mental health. In fact, when I, you and I were trying to connect about eight months ago, because me and a few friends were going down to Florida, and that was kind of, that was a real eye-opening experience to go from New England, where I had been uh, pretty much since the very beginning of the pandemic, to Florida, where it's like, oh, wow, people are living a normal kind of existence here. And I, I had been transitioning, I think, into a normal existence myself for many, many months at that point. But Florida was really 
like a, a change in place and then a change in, uh, well, actual state, but also a change in um, mental state that really, 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 I think I set me on the right course for 2021. I was there for uh, New Year's Eve in Naples. And um, yeah, so that's one thing of many things, CJ, that you have going for you is that you're you're there. I hate to like make a, a political designation a meaningful plus, but in this case, it is. It's hard to deny, right? Yeah. I mean, I've never been so happy to be in Florida as over the past, say, year and a half, um, because, you know, other than maybe, what is it, South mm -hmm. Dakota, there's not a whole lot of states that were, you know, as relatively reasonable uh, as Florida. But, you know, certain localities went all in on lockdowns and masks and everything. And um, so did certain institutions, right? Like colleges, like, you know, the governor's not making all these, these mandates, but many of the individual state colleges and universities made their own decisions as far as, you know, masks and, and, you know, making all the classes online for a while and all these sorts of things. So, you know, even in Florida, now I'm sure if you're in some tiny town in, in an unpopulated area of the panhandle or whatever, I'm sure it's kind of like being in Wyoming where like you might as well, you know, not even know anything's going on. But, you know, if you're in any of the mid to larger size places, there's still been stuff going on enough to enough to be a little bit a little bit of a downer. And yeah, I guess what's bothering bothering me really recently is just, you know, I'm in a I'm in a red county that I believe is surrounded by nothing but red counties in Florida. And so you would think that, you know, and, and it's probably not a good thing, the degree to which people's opinions about COVID have been just lined up on party lines. But nonetheless, if you're in a red county surrounded by red counties, you would think that there'd be much more resistance, especially the second time around to just jumping when the uh, the CDC says jump or whatever. And so, you know, the last couple of days, especially going into stores where state and local government isn't telling you you have to mask up. The only people are telling you you have to mask up is just the CDC's recommendations, which change by the hour seemingly. Um, and there's nobody threatening you or enforcing you. There's nobody telling you you can't come into the store without a mask or whatever. It's just as like the CDC uh, and Walmart or whoever recommend. And to see yeah. that many people just, you know, snap to um, and, and say, all right, we're at war with East Asia this week. Okay. And, and to do it with no one even making them. And people that you would assume, you know, majority of people in this county voted for Trump, like you would think just that alone would make them somewhat skeptical of all these sorts of things, especially this late in the game. I mean, you know, fool me once, shame on you kind of thing, right? Like, I can forgive people, myself included, for in the early months of this whole thing, kind of not being sure what to make of it and, you know, being erring on the side of caution. You know, I, I'm willing to be nice enough and say, look, through May or June of 2020, I'm willing to forgive uh, anybody, whether in a, whether they're in a position of authority or not, for erring on the side of caution. But at a certain point, it's like, don't you realize how much of this is hysterical? How much of this is unscientific? How much of this makes no sense? I mean, think back to the the early stages of all these lockdowns and things. How many of the how many of the the things they did were actually counterproductive? to the stated goal of stopping the spread of the virus. Like, for example, a lot of stores very early on in this whole thing, at least around here, that have multiple entrances and exits 
closed all of them but one, right? So, you know, I go to Walmart, which normally has two or three different entrances and exits open you can go through. They had them all closed except for one in the name of COVID. It's like, well, wait, you're funneling everybody through one narrow choke point in, in and out of the store. Isn't that actually the opposite of trying to reduce, you know, the, the close contact and the spread of the virus or whatever, things like that, or closing all of the, the um, county and city parks for months? It's like, wait. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, so I was talking to my boomer dad yesterday. He had some questions because I'm actually headed there uh, in the next couple weeks. And uh, he was asking me about the the procedure, the shot. And, you know, I, I stated my case and I built it out for him. And, you know, he he expressed frustration and confusion. And I said, well, maybe just try to, like, change your perspective a little bit instead of thinking about it as a vi- now look dad i'm crazy we all know this i've proven it over the last 15 years that you know i'm just really out there but let's just you know do a thought experiment where we kind of tap into my suspicion and skepticism a minute and we say it's not about a virus it's about psychological warfare and i'm not saying that that's the truth i'm just saying like See, like, put that filter on it and see if a lot of what we're witnessing makes more sense. And I said, I can't, you know, I can't completely explain why that is happening. But, uh, you know, it's also helpful to be able to apply a new lens to the situation to say, okay, well, does it make more sense Um if we look at it like this, because I think one of the reasons why uh, this this sort of psychological campaign is effective against a lot of people is they're fairly helpless in understanding it. And it's not that they're incapable of understanding it. They might just lack some some of the context that would be more helpful for understanding what's happening right now. And it, it doesn't just have to um, be limited to like conspiracy theory or uh you know some uh, some kind of tyrannical government waging a psychological uh, war uh on its own people like people participate in that that psychological destruction you know horizontally like you like you talked about you mentioned that uh earlier but uh I know you did a show recently on the true believer and and mass movements and I I've been thinking about this probably since last April. I was thumbing through the true believer, uh, starting around the time that people really, really started to tribalize and be very, very uh, shaming and blaming around the mask issue, which is obviously, you know, if you want to see it as an organized thing, a trial balloon for the current controversy that uh, that everybody is focused on around the shot. And I think I could have been you know, taking a historian's perspective or taking like uh, psychi- psychiatric perspectives on what's happening right now. A lot of them really like sell the average person short. I, I regretfully included a quote from uh, this this book called The Rape of the Mind recently. Um, the author uh, Joyst Merilu, and uh, the quote starts out like, the masses have never thirsted for truth, right? The, if you try to tell them the truth, you will be their casualty. Uh, 
Now, in a mass psychological sense, that might be true, but it's a very, very cynical view of the average person. And when you deal with people one-on-one, my boomer dad or other people of that age who are very, very, you know, set in their conclusions, if you're just able to calmly approach these issues with them, and this is even, I've done this with people on the right, I've done this with people on the left, and I feel like recently, even as incendiary as things are right now, and you, you want to be very, very careful, especially people with our worldview in how we're touching the nerves of others who might completely you know, lack a frame of reference for where we're even coming from or how we're even evaluating the situation, what our objections to this might even be. It's like a public health emergency. All options are on the table. How could you be selfish? You know, like whatever uh, preconceptions they're, they're taking to this. I have found that in one-on-one conversations – Without really, really focusing on my own contrasting narrative, my own counter narrative, but just hearing them out and then trying to plant some seeds of curiosity. I said in my most recent show, um, a quote that I like, I heard uh, my friend Landon say, you know, the best time to plant a a tree is 20 years ago and right now. And 20 years ago would have been great. And many of us tried, but here we are right now. And I don't think we're going to red pill a lot of people in the middle of a crisis, but I do think there is an opportunity uh, that outreach is now about self-defense and just planting seeds of curiosity, just trying to create pattern interruptions for people to get them to, to you know, to put that, that seed of doubt uh, about everything that's happening uh, is, is really, really important. And it comes with the understanding that instead of just saying, well, the masses have never thirsted for truth. Yeah. You know, that sounds like something that Marx or Stalin or, you know, uh, Hegel would say in just this, like uh, the cynical assessment of the rabble. But those of us who've done work on ourselves or those of us who promoted these, um, personal development concepts in one form or another on a show, we know that people are capable of so much more. And, you know, I think at that point, it comes to this, this sympathy because you, you can only, yeah, we have shows and we can talk to thousands of people at once and, and that's great. But I feel like with that responsibility now comes this mission for me anyway, of like, how do you do a better job of these uh, one-on-one or small group interactions, not for the sake of red-pilling or converting or awakening, but at this point for your own self-defense. When these people are exposed to media that is basically turning them against friends and family. Not that that's a new phenomenon, but it's certainly an accelerating phenomenon. And it almost seems to be like, you know, it's like, From 2016 to 2020, we saw one level of acceleration. Then we saw that duplicated just as far as the tribalization and otherizing. Um, We saw it duplicated in the next year with COVID and social uh, justice, for lack of a better word, issues. Now we're seeing that year, um, you know, kind of fold into a matter of months with the, with the shot debate. So this is definitely accelerating. And I think people have to think in terms of self-defense from the people who've claimed to love and support them, maybe most of their lives. 
and to not blame those people and to not otherize those people and also to understand very much what's alive in them as far as like their desire to make meaning. So back to like the masses have never thirsted for truth. What else are we seeing right now than a bunch of people thirsting for truth? dehydrated from a lack of truth and trying to make meaning and make sense through what is at least playing out very much like an intentional psychological war. And just back to the the themes of the true believer in mass movements, as things accelerate so quickly and things change so frequently and everything seems so fluid and unpredictable for the average person who doesn't have these different frames to apply to the situation and is hanging on the words of the television or the CDC or whatever and, and it, it, you know is so susceptible to the conversation being moderated by by tech giants and not getting certain information that would be really really helpful in these situations they are on a quest to make meaning and when on a quest to make meaning in a very seemingly confusing or meaningless world, like my dad expressed to me yesterday, they are going to gravitate to other people who've made the same meaning. And then they clutch on to that meaning as a tribe and their enemy becomes uh, people who threaten the meaning they've made because they've made meaning through some other means or with some other information. And when that contradiction occurs, it just pushes people further and further apart. And I think like being able to slow that down and understand and listen to other people and then ask questions. And I, I can kind of run through the exercise that I did related to getting the shot and why I am not in a position to do that right now, personally. Uh, I've laid this out several times, um, trying to put just, you know, a few Seeds of doubt or, you know, seeds of curiosity into that has been, has been really, really helpful. And most importantly, it's like empowering. It sucks to walk away from the conversations with the people that you care about feeling like you are just being puppeteered by, you know, the same people ultimately that they're being puppeteered by. And, and to, to, to say, I'm not going to be part of this. I am not going to be, um, you know, susceptible to, Let's just say a psychological uh, war campaign against me, I'm going to do something different. I think that is extremely helpful for, for our own psyche in this situation because this isn't going anywhere. Delta is like the fourth letter of the Greek alphabet. So this is not, you know, <laughs> this, this is not like end in the, uh, uh, the end of August or anything like that. This is going to be with us for a while. And I think we really need to to fortify emotionally again uh, while understanding that it is okay to have a healthy cynicism for what is beyond our sphere of control, but really, really embracing optimism and empowerment for what is inside our sphere of control, which – uh, still probably includes a lot of the people that we've known and loved. So that's, I, I, that's a speech, but that's where a lot of my thinking is going right now. Yeah. And I'll say that for me, a big part of not ending up in an even worse place than I did mental health wise over the past year and change, almost year and a half at this point, uh, has been focusing closer to home and even in home and in in many ways, you know, as hard as the last year, especially last school year was for me, and in some ways it was one of the hardest years of my life, what kept me afloat and kept me from ending up worse off 
was the fact that I've got a good relationship with my wife and with my kids. And even while so many other aspects of my life were being harmed by the past year and a half, particularly uh, my work life. And then also when I would, you know, watch the big picture and watch, you know, the, all the COVID madness, all the riots, the way that they seized upon the January 6th riot to turn it into, oh, it was a coup attempt. And now it's the war on domestic extremism and whatever. And all those things are all, you know, very foreboding and depressing to anyone who thinks human liberty is even kind of a good thing that's worthwhile. And my, my life preservers have been my nuclear family. And even while so much other parts of the world and parts of my life went to complete shit, I would say that over the past 18 months, my relationship with my wife and kids has gotten stronger and deeper at the same time. And so I can look back on that aspect of my life over the last year and a half positively and say, you know, thankfully for that, right? Thank, thankfully, I, I had those people there and I had a pretty good relationship with them before all this stuff happened. And then we were able to kind of form an even closer bond as the world kind of burned around us. And, you know, that, that's something that I, I kind of, you know, regularly uh, remind myself and kind of redirect myself to whenever I'm getting too down about, you know, the world uh, burning down and, and going insane and losing its mind more every day. And it, it also, I guess, because I'm, I'm cursed with a bit too much empathy, it, it makes me sad and feel sorry for, and also feel, I don't know, a little bit scared of all the people out there who've been going through the last year and a half without something like that, without having, you know, somebody or several somebodies who are really close to them, who they're able to, you know, in, in the midst of, of crisis and insanity, uh, have that little shelter in the storm with, um, you know, I, like imagine uh, someone who's got nobody close to them getting through the last year and a half or somebody who, you know, has a spouse or, or live in a significant other who you already had a terrible relationship with. And now you're under house arrest with that person for a year or more. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, you know, how, how many people, in other words, as, as dark of a place as I was in and out of over the past year and a half, how much darker is it for so many people who either had nobody or had somebody that they didn't have a good relationship with? And maybe it only got worse over the last year, especially people who ended up, you know, in, in a much worse place than me financially, like people who lost uh, jobs, who lost businesses that they had built and whatever. And like, what's that going to do to your, your personal and family life? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it's certainly a lot to think about. I guess the positive uh, focus and something that could be passed along to maybe people who are listening to us, and you know that that situation that you just described uh, is relatable. I, I know it's kind of a personal question, but what do you attribute to those strengthening relationships inside your own home? Like, wh what do you feel were some of the things that were responsible for that, or the uh, you know the intentionality that you put to that to make that happen? I think it's a lot of it is the work done in years before. Sure. I, I think that's, that's a big part of it, right? Just like how, you know, when you see a person who's fit and healthy, it's like what you're really looking at is countless hours at the gym, countless days of, you know, eating right and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so in, in a way, I suppose it's sort of the payoff uh, for the fact that, 
my my wife and I have worked on our relationship and it's gotten better over time. Not not that it wasn't, you know, and good initially to begin with, but like everybody, you know, we've we've been together well, well over 15 years at this point. I'm trying to trying to do the math in my head. Yeah, we'll be we'll have been married 18 years in uh this this December. And you know, we've had our ups and downs and we've had some hard times where our relationship wasn't as great, but we always, both of us kind of made an effort to, to work on things, to work things out, to, to get better over time. And the same thing as parents, like there's plenty of things looking back, uh, particularly the first few years I, I was a father, like there's a bunch of things I, I would change or do differently or whatever. And there's some things I regret, but my, my consolation is that, I can I can look at my kids with a straight face and say, I've tried to do better each day and each year. Mm. You know, I'm always trying to trying to be a better a better father, a, a better husband, a better you know communicator, and all these sorts of things. And and I'm never perfect, and I'm always going to make mistakes and have things that I look back on and regret. But at the same time, just to know that you're trying to do better. And, um, you know, that, that includes psychological work that includes, you know, trying to, I'm a fan of the overall peaceful parent idea, right. Of, of not, not hitting your kids, not yelling at your kids, all that kind of stuff and trying to get better at that and trying to be better. You know, I naturally tend to have a temper and I've had to do a lot of work on, on not, not losing it, especially over stupid things and at people that I care about. Um, and, and that's, that's part of it too. And I, and I give my wife a lot of credit. She's. Um, she's always been very, very good with kids. Unlike me, I had to learn it. And, but we've always had a good back and forth where we check and balance each other, where if one of us is kind of going off the reservation a little bit, particularly in regard to the kids and is being a little bit crazy or, or, you know, losing their temper or whatever, the other one will kind of step in and, and have that nice check and balance. So, you know, I, I think it's, it's doing, doing some psychological work in regard to yourself and then in regard to your relationships before the crisis hits, if possible, because, you know, you don't want to try and build a lifeboat as the Titanic is already, you know, three quarters underwater or whatever. I don't know if that's the best analogy. Mm. Um, it's, it's better to, to build a lifeboat and have it ready in case you need it. And so I think if you've already done the work on yourself and your close relationships, then when a crisis comes along, it can actually create that bonding situation and you know you sort of feel like it's it's uh your little group against the world and you know i mean disaster can happen right i mean if you had a great wonderful strong nuclear family uh in i don't know in europe and then world war ii hits and a bomb falls on your neighborhood it's like you know at a certain point shit happens yeah uh there's not much you can do about it but at least you've put yourself in the best uh the best situation for for getting through that if you don't you know, we just have the bomb kill you or whatever. Um, sounding, sounding a bit dark, but I guess that that would be my take. All right. Well, I, I totally agree. And, you know, one of the things that I've expressed um, for years and just talking about uh, how we interact with the people close to us, especially around things that can be kind of triggering yeah, for us or, or for them. So, you know, in, you know, I've told stories about how People were talking like at a family gathering and I would walk into the room and the subject would be like, hush, 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 change the subject uh, because people weren't interested in in my perspective on it. Now, that's, you know, a two way street, obviously, because of how I communicated 
my perspectives, uh, especially in the early going, going of like forming, discovering and forming. But uh, yeah, the lament is kind of like, it's really uh, hard to have relationships that are based on what I'm shutting away about myself, that are based on what I don't say, that are conditional, that require me to exile parts of myself or perspectives that are near and dear to me. And I think in in the realm of romantic relationships, that idea, like having that foundation of acceptance, you know, like I think that's a real basis for love. And that idea that just as we would say to ourselves, to have a healthy relationship with ourselves, all of the parts of me that uh, you know, exist at maybe various levels of resourcefulness and maturity, um, are welcome, you know, like all those parts are welcome. And part of love is welcoming that in somebody else. So especially when tensions are high, and people maybe have a tendency to not be able to maintain their best self 100% of the time because of external stressors, they don't feel like they have to sweep things under the carpet or shut parts uh, of themselves away, be it uncomfortable thoughts, uncomfortable emotions. And you know, that's that's really what I've tried to like cultivate in my most important relationships. And I've even made a lot of progress with with family on that uh, in the last few years. But I think that's that's really, really most important in that most important relationship that we many of us have, which is uh, like a, a romantic partnership to say, you know, let's let's face the difficult things. That's where growth comes from. We learn that in doing it for ourselves. And um, yeah, that's that's definitely an effort that that I've made this year uh, learning from mistakes of the past. So, yeah, a lot of overlap there. Yeah, for sure. Well, switching gears to um why I really wanted to talk to you around around this time is, you know, I know because I'm a I'm a regular listener to your show that you are very soon going to be wrapping up School Sucks, which you have done for 12 years. Is that is it 12 years this year? Yes. August is the 12th year anniversary month of School Sucks. So I figured what a great time to draw things to a close. So it's like you've gotten to 12th grade. It's it well, here's the thinking, right? Now, honestly, the project has probably run on longer than it needed to. I think I made it more just from like from a satisfaction standpoint, it's been great because every week I can just do whatever I want, explore whatever I want talk to whoever I want, you know, within reason or, you know, at my level uh, or slightly above my level of influence. Um, you know, I can reach out to those people. I can have great conversations. I can pursue the things that interest me at a given time. But as far as what it was intended to be, it's drifted off message too much where uh, a person coming to the website looking for like practical answers to the schooling crisis that they face, that their children face, they might not really know what to do with what they encounter. So it's become, I think, more of the Brett Vinat show and less of a like alternative education resource. And I can pretty much 
do anything I want, just, you know, oh, this is like not taught in school and has educational values and we're creating this clearinghouse of, you know, all of this content that people would never get through K through 12 schooling or even in higher education. So it's okay to pursue that. So while it has been, you know, the greatest success of my life in many ways, from a business standpoint, from a growth standpoint, while it has grown and it has sustained me as, uh, you know, a job, it's at this point, like, just too cobbled together, trying to be too many things to too many people. And I feel like my enthusiasm has waned a little bit. I feel like I could take the lessons learned from this project and apply them to something new, something that has better open doorways to more people while still covering a lot of the same intellectual self-defense uh, and personal empowerment content that uh, you know School Sucks has presented. But School Sucks project will continue, and it needs to be preserved and kind of curated as a resource for people who are looking to answers, uh, looking for answers to alternative education, homeschooling, unschooling questions. And maybe there would be some revisitation of a, a different kind of podcast, probably not hosted by me, maybe building a network of people who are, who are doing similar types of content, alternatives to school, alternatives to college. Uh, dealing with school politics, like Corey DeAngelis is obviously become a real competent uh, voice and heavy hitter in that arena. And there, there are others like him. And I've discovered a lot of interesting YouTube channels. But to be able to to network people together um, and and have the school sucks project and the schools the discontinued school sucks podcast. Um, as as a part of that, I I think is a good path forward. Um, I am starting a new media project, most likely in the fall. That, uh, like I said, will capitalize on lessons learned. That will start things outright. That will lead people in a certain direction. Versus this show, which you know, in two thousand nine was just a hobby. It was just a way for me to vent. It was just a uh, a need, I think it was meeting a need for me to feel like I had integrity. The more doubt I was having about what I was actually doing to make money, if I put this voice, and I'm sure you can identify with this, if I put this voice into the world, that kind of balances me so I can still continue to like, you know, SAT tutor and college consult and those things. But uh, this gives me. Uh, you know, a way to turn a valve and uh, be more to feel more consistent with where where my mind is actually at and how I spend my time and you know what I choose to do. So eventually, like that, overtook the job that I had, and I just did this full time, and that was great. But I really feel like I could do a more successful media project that would be attractive to more people and lead more people to actual solutions. I put a lot of thought into people like Tim Pool and uh initially approached his work with a very critical attitude where it's like this dude is just making people angry and really not giving them anything. And 
I realized that that's not entirely true, but Tim Pool's job in a system might just be to inspire that kind of ire in people, to to wake them up to the fact that, look, shit is not all right out there. And, you know, where you go from here is up to you, but it's my job and it's, you know, within my wheelhouse or within my, I, I have this skill set and I have this work ethic that points you to the problems. And then you have to decide, you have to take personal responsibility. Like, where do you go next? So I do favor more of an all-in-one approach where I'm not leaving people feeling agitated without solutions. It's like anything we do, I'm really, really trying to build some kind of like positive action or, um, I, I don't know, what's the best way to say it? I'm really trying to build some kind of positive action into it or like a, a piece of wisdom that you can take away from this that will be helpful almost immediately. So in starting with things that are timely and extracting lessons that are more timeless while entertaining people, I think we've done a pretty good job of that at School Sucks Project. And I think I can, I think I can build on that uh, with something else. Most importantly, it's kind of like, yeah, I could keep doing School Sucks podcast. I'm in kind of a comfort zone with it for sure. Uh, but I don't feel super inspired because, you know, I just feel like it's run its course. And what better time to to end it than at the 12 year mark where people are invited to do a side by side. Uh, you know, we asked for 12 years of your time, a lot less than 15,000 hours, but a span of 12 years of your time. It's what public school demands of us. Uh, which one provided more value? And I mean, I think the answer is clear. So that was why, uh, you know, the 12 year mark seemed like the most appropriate time to, to draw this to a close. Did you find, uh, when you started it as a younger and I think probably angrier, uh, man, mm. did you, did you find that having the podcast as an outlet, as a place you could vent and also as a place that you could say what you really wanted to say and, and, you know, put more of your own creativity into it than, than what you were doing in the classroom before. Did you find that that mellowed you out a bit and improved your mental health? Almost like the podcast was acting as your, your bartender or your, your barber or whatever. Yeah. That's um, it's an interesting thing to think about because um, I had a very, very frustrating job from about 2000 to 2004 when I worked at a uh, a boarding school and, you know, I was young, I was in my early twenties. So I wanted to like move up the organization. It was private. It was a, a business. So there was a lot of upward mobility for competent people. They had um, difficulty finding good and reliable people. It was just in a very like rural part of Vermont. So um, yeah, I, I made some sacrifices in terms of mental health early in my career um, I had them install me as a lead teacher in charge of an entire campus of uh, some kids with some really, really severe emotional and behavioral issues. And I did that for a couple of years. And it was like the first time in my life where uh, there was this test of like, how can I make this my own thing? How can I gain some ownership or control over what's going on here instead of just reacting to 
this environment and you know all of the the difficulties that come with it that other people are just accepting or worse yet blaming uh the students for so that was like the first uh, the first trial of that in my life was like making you know turning this into a life skills curriculum starting a newspaper uh trying to make these kids feel empowered trying to make them feel like they belonged to the larger school community because they were on this separate campus where they had been exiled and everybody there was sort of this implicit understanding that the kids who are at that part of the school are like extra defective um so i felt like that was a big success and after a couple years of teaching a job opened up teaching history at this other school that was run by the same company. And I said, now I want that job. And when I had that job, to to your question, that felt a lot like the barber, the bartender. I could just get up in front of the class and uh, give talks about things that were interesting to me as long as you know I could frame them uh, in, in a historical way. And... I really wanted to like inspire interest in the subject. I wasn't concerned at all about checking off a you know a state standard uh, list, uh, nothing like that. I could do what I wanted as long as I could keep the kids in the room and fairly quiet because uh, it was also you know a school for kids who had behavioral issues. They were they were fine, and the school was run by like very conservative people. This was like uh, you know around the time that the Iraq War was heating up and the the reelection of two thousand four, and I was like a pretty you know left wing guy like Howard Zinn, Noam Chomsky, People's History of the United States. Like that was my scene. So there was a little bit of friction around some of that, but they're like still whatever. If he can if he can maintain uh, his corral, then that's fine. And and that was kind of like a bright spot in my career because of the amount of freedom that I had. I don't think I gave those kids a lot of good information in those two years, but maybe I like broadened their perspectives a little bit, and that's um, that was helpful to many of them. But after that, to make more money, I started private tutoring, where I was like, you know, I'm here to help you get better grades. I'm here to help you score higher on the SAT. I'm here to help you get into a better college than your neighbor. That kind of stuff. It was lucrative. It was very lucrative, but it was kind of soul sucking. And after a couple years of doing that, in an attempt to grab more ownership, I started my own business doing it. And it just felt like more of the same. It started becoming very, very repetitive. I now had about nine years of experience working with young people at you know from like elementary school level to college level i was like you know tutoring teachers to take certification exams and stuff like that and uh that was where i was like this is really doesn't feel like it's going anywhere just as far as like professional satisfaction like to become an educator you feel like i think this is why many teachers get so disillusioned and disappointed is that you go into that feeling like you're really, really doing something important. And it's hard to maintain that belief if you're kind of like in touch with the realities of the the system or, you know, the particular environments you're in. So I felt that way. And I think that was what drove me to just figure out how to plug a microphone into a computer and put something onto the internet. And I was lucky. I, you know, I was lucky that it it caught on fairly quickly and uh, we built an audience around that, and and you know I was able to 
gain that kind of ownership and independence over an educational message better than I ever had before. But yeah, I mean, if you listen to the first 50 to 100 episodes, it is me, you know, angry and drunk in a bar, basically. So yes, <laughs> the answer to your question is yes. <laughs> Yeah, and I've noticed the same thing. I haven't been doing my podcast as long. Um, I celebrated seven years a couple of months ago. Seven, seven oh, years. Congratulations, history. Thanks. Yeah, and you know, I noticed a similar thing, and I didn't really realize it until after it kind of already was happening. That simply by having that outlet, it made me a little bit less angry. <laughs> <laughs> on a day-to-day -day basis and a little bit more mellow and you know I, I i still get pissed off about about horrible crimes past and present and you know i still can sometimes get passionate about some of the subjects i talk about but i don't know i i just feel like it's it's kind of mellowed me out a little bit most of the time and i can see why you know people who have similar worldviews to us or even just anybody who's got a fairly out of the mainstream worldview if they don't have some sort of an outlet i can see how over time they could just get angrier and angrier and then simultaneously they might get more and more uh, deranged in some of their beliefs and some of the, the the means that they're willing to endorse in in pursuance of those beliefs and so i do want to say though for anybody listening there's plenty of podcasts out there. Please, people listening, make sure if you're going to start a podcast that it really has something new or different or unique about it before you start a podcast. But that said, there's other outlets besides just podcasting for kind of venting some of your frustrations and expressing some of your worldviews. And, um, you know, I, I guess I guess it's become a cliche at this point that like literally every libertarian has a podcast. But you know, there's probably something that you can do that that uh, you're you know uniquely good at, and maybe it is podcasting, but maybe it's something else. I don't know. Maybe it's drawing uh, graphic novels or or writing poems or who knows what. But not that everything has to be explicitly politicized. I actually am against that whole idea, but just some way that you can kind of I don't know exercise a few of those demons a little bit. Um, whatever is metaphorically your bartender or your uh, barber or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I don't know how much time you spend in, uh, you're not too far from like St. Augustine, are you? What's your closest city? Oh yeah. I'm, I'm only a half hour South of St. Augustine and I lived there for many, many years. In cities, I have noticed you will see this phenomenon of people walking around who instead of opting for headphones to listen to their music, will carry Bluetooth speakers with them and let everybody listen to their music. Have you seen this? Have you experienced this? Yes, this is the high-tech modern version of the old boombox from the 80s. Okay, well, the old boombox from the 80s is another version of this. People driving up and down the beach with their windows down, making everybody listen to their, to their music. Um, this could be seen as an annoyance, right? <laughs> but I think it is, uh, even though it has always existed, in the last two decades, people have been able to become, just through the technology available, better, not maybe necessarily better, but curators 
of the world around them, of like bringing the things that they like and discovering the things that they like into their lives. And I, and I actually think there's like this increased pressure to like share. And obviously we have, you know, these social media platforms that invite this. They're kind of a trap because people think they're engaging in this, this kind of expression or this kind of venting, but it's, it's echo chambering them. It's pitting them against, uh, you know, friends and family where it's like now our relationship, uh, is not important. It's just this argument online. So it, it's backfired in a lot of ways, but you know, that the boom box, the Bluetooth speaker, the car with the windows down pumping bass. It's like, Hey, everybody, I want you to know about me. I kind of need you to know about me and what I'm all about and the things I like. And I don't even know if I'm looking for approval or what, what I'm really at, but I need to externalize, uh, me. I need to express myself. So I think that is an impulse that a lot of people have. Um, it's, there are various qualities of channeling of it, right? And that's, that's even true in like the YouTube and, and podcast world. Like everybody has this voice. Any, the barrier to entry is so low. It's created a tremendous amount of noise. And, uh, yeah, I, I think that it is something to consider carefully as far as like, what is the new thing that I can put out into the world or what is, what is the strength that I can purvey to other people? Um, that I have in myself. Uh, so I do think we, what we've witnessed in the last two decades, uh, on the one hand, has been absolutely amazing. Like the, uh, the discoveries of talent that would have gone unrecognized or unrealized throughout most of history. The, um, finding of a voice where, you know, uh, when we were kids, we would have just had to, in many ways, sit there in frustrated silence or uh, kept doodles or, um, you know, scribbled writings in a, in a notebook. And, you know, today, somebody in that same situation can attract a million followers. I think that's that's really promising. It's a it's certainly a double edged sword uh, as far as the noise it creates. But it, it I, I think it I, I think it has been. Uh, a net benefit to the world. But, uh, yeah, just as far as like media production, I wouldn't do, you know, the Brett Vinat show. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't presume that that would be interesting. I would want to offer people something like more unique. How, how, uh, yeah. Okay. So I think my voice is unique, but. I would want it to be like more directed. I would want there to be like a clearer expectation of like, here's what you get from investing your time with me. When there is so much competition for your time, for your attention, here's what I can give you. And being really, really clear about that um, is is very, very important. So, uh, and, and yeah, that's where a lot of my thinking has actually gone over the course of the last year. So. I wanted to ask you, the, the next thing I wanted to ask you was looking back on 12 years of doing this and however many hundreds of episodes you've done does anything or you know any several things or whatever uh particular episodes particular series whatever what stands out to you if anything as 
things that you're particularly proud of or that you look back on most fondly or that you really think like that, that one really, I mean, you know, hopefully you look back and are at least mostly positive on most of your episodes, but are there any, there any standouts that come to mind? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that, um, the John Taylor Gatto video series was, uh, one of the things that I was most proud of. Um, in, in 2013, I spent a summer with my friend Richard Grove and, uh, Lisa, uh, down in Connecticut. And they had produced this really, really amazing documentary about John Taylor Gatto, who was somebody who was a, if anybody doesn't know, public school teacher. Three of us actually, you, me, Rich, we did a round table about Gatto uh, a few years ago. Yeah, shortly after he died. Yeah, yeah. They had done a documentary with John. Uh, maybe like 2011 called The Ultimate History Lesson. And I remember being at their house and just seeing shelves stacked with DVDs. And I was thinking like, uh, part of, part of like why I was there is we were sort of toying with the idea of like, could we produce a resource list of like, what were Gatto's primary sources? For this book, could we do a research project where using like archive.org where you can find, you can find a ton of the books that Gatto references and they're all, uh, very, uh, very interesting reads written, you know, in the 19 teens by progressive academics and some of their designs revealed. It's, uh, it's interesting stuff that Gatto went through and we were able to stand on his shoulders with a lot of the work that we did. So it was kind of like a gesture of gratitude to John. It was a project that, inspired me the idea of like, could I produce short videos for YouTube that would alert people to John's work, uh, particularly the Underground History of Education book that could help Rich move some of these DVDs off his shelf. And it really just became an absolute labor of love for me. Uh, John ultimately saw the videos. I was asked to write the foreword for the second edition of the Underground History or volume two of the second edition, which still isn't out. Um, to the underground history of American education. And that was, even though I never got to meet John, I did get to go to his apartment with uh, a group of people in December to help clear out his book collection. But to be acknowledged by him, somebody who was so important in my intellectual development that way, uh, that was probably one of the greater successes that I experienced um, in this in this entire 12-year run. I would add the, um, the trip that I went on, School Sucks Across America, in 2017, which was 40 days. I met hundreds of people, um, had, you know, an adventure like I had never had in my life before. And it was kind of, uh, you know, these really connected, uh, appreciative gatherings where I'm appreciating people for coming out and for listening and supporting. And, you know, they're appreciating me for showing up, um, sort of interrupted by these long periods of contemplative silence on the roads, just driving, driving in silence, no music, no podcast, four or five, six hours at a time through some, you know, alien landscape, like stuff I had never seen before in Utah. It was, it was a really life-changing experience. And it really at that, you know, what was that? The, the eight year mark of doing the show, um, revealed to me what, had actually been 
built as far as like a community and a following and um, a level of influence that I probably never could have had through traditional educational means or like where my, what my career was. And um, that was just a really, like a really powerful experience. And to see the quality of people that I had managed to attract to me uh, and also, you know, kind of a sadness of like all these great people that I just really could never have the relationships that I want to have with just because there isn't, there isn't time. Uh, I think that's, that's one of the, the tricks of what we do. If we manage to build a following is you see the quality of people that come into your world and, uh, you know, you can't attend to those relationships the way that you would like to just because there's too many of them. Um, so that's that's like something to be grateful for, but it's also kind of sad. And I remember reflecting on that when I when I got back. But uh, overall, it was one of the best experiences that I ever had. And um, man, I, th there's probably a, a multi way tie for third place. I'm very very proud of a lot of the the shows that we've created and the presentations that we've we've done on on subjects and finding unique takes and um unique means of production. I I have to admit I go back and I I listen <laughs> to to like at least the intros to shows and I'm like man that's good. That is a that is a good intro, Brett. So I'm kind of moving beyond this feeling very very satisfied with with a lot of it but also realizing that um there's a lot of trade-offs to like in my philosophy of like podcasting is forever so make everyone the best it can ab absolutely be you know that that costs money that costs me money and i think i i know i need to change my approach going forward so that's kind of what i'm strategizing about right now is how do i let go of this very, very often involved uh, production style that I do to um, produce more content, to be more timely, and uh, to be more relevant and to be more, honestly, successful financially, if this is what I'm going to devote my time to as far as uh, vocation. Yeah, I can definitely echo that, you know, struggle between sort of quantity and quality, right? If you want to make every episode as close to perfect as possible, that's that's going to make you, you know, not as prolific. And that's something I keep struggling with back and forth over the years. You know, when I started my podcast, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And so I was able to be more prolific because I was putting out stuff that, you know, the, the production quality wasn't great. They weren't well edited and whatever. But the plus side of that was I could put out episodes a lot more frequently. The episodes also were shorter, uh, usually not as not as long and not as in depth as a lot of the stuff I do now. And so there's always that that struggle, right? Between you know, I, I guess the ultimate example would be somebody like Dan Carlin, right, who puts out maybe one or two episodes of Hardcore History a year, and most podcasters simply can't do that and and end up with a following like he has like he's the bizarre exception that proves the rule i guess yeah and yeah that's that's where i'm at right now particularly with when i do like a long you know narrative historical episode that's like 2 or 3 hours with with a lot of detailed information or whatever it's like that takes a huge amount of time and i'm like man could i just you know sum up some of this stuff but then you know i know that 
that's what a lot of listeners seem to want for me, at least is, is like the, these very detailed um, historical narratives sort of more in the Dan Carlin style, as far as length and, and detail and everything. Um, so those are, those are very popular. The download numbers speak for themselves, but then it means I can't put them out as often. So long story short, I, I, I hear you and I, I, I feel your pain as far as that, that constant struggle between perfectionism or just, you know, kind of cranking out, I guess like somebody like Tim pool or whatever, where it's like, I'm going to rant off the top of my head for 20 minutes about something that just popped up in the news today, you know, uh, w- without a whole lot of like, I don't know. I, I always want to, I always want to overthink before I make an episode about something. I always want to really, really make sure I've got all my ducks in a row. Right. Because if you're putting out something that is very in opposition to the, all the mainstream narratives, then it's like, you have to set the bar really high for things like basic factual accuracy yeah. and all that. And then, you know, how much does that hobble? How, how many episodes you can put out? Right. And I think, you know, part of that too is like, while I don't love the Tim pool model where it's like, let me show you an article and then rant about why your enemies suck version, whatever. Um, and again, yeah, that sounded, that sounded very dismissive of Tim pool, but it's, it's like, a lot of my time, I, I'm not good at leveraging my time. Like there is a lot of time invested as far as like work that never shows up in any way in the world. You know, you kind of know what I mean? Like 10 hours of work go into a 90 minute podcast, but to everybody who experiences it but me, it was just, it's 90 minutes. And it's 90, and here's the other thing too. It's 90 minutes of their time that they're investing. So it's, it's a weird thing to be like, Hey, um, would you also appreciate the fact in addition to the time that you invested and the intention that you invested? Would you also appreciate that that was like nine or 10 X for me? It's, it's a weird proposition. You know, it seems kind of like unfair. (laughs) So I I do think that it's like, all right, well, you know, you could be woe is me about that. And what's, what's the point of that? It's like, I really enjoy the process, but you know, sometimes that has to be, that enjoyment has to be weighed against the bottom line and to say, well, how could I leverage my time better? Where Tim Poole uh, I know I keep coming back to Tim Pool, but like, who else is who else is doing something similar to that? I feel like there's a, a handful of people. Uh, can you think of any other ones off the top of your head? I think Alex Jones, especially, I don't know, eight ten years ago, was was along those lines when like when he was still you know on all the platforms and whatever. I I don't I don't honestly know how prolific he is now because I don't really follow him anymore, but. You know, maybe back around 2010, 2011, um, I listened to Alex Jones fairly often, and I think he was sort of that way. Now, you know, he had he had a little bit, I think, fancier production and whatever already back then than Tim Pool often has. But as far as like, you know, just kind of like putting out multiple rants a day about the latest headlines and whatever, I think Alex Jones was kind of that way. Right. Yeah. I well, I mean, I, I, there's definitely many of these voices. But they're leveraging their time really well as far as like, you know, 
they encounter a news article, maybe they read it, then they hit record and they can, or they go live and they can just kind of react to it. And, um, yeah. And, and, you know, Dave Smith is pretty good at that too. Like Dave Smith is really good at it. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's got a gift for, you know, just sort of ranting, but ranting very well. I don't mean the word ranting in like a, you know, insulting or dismissive way, but you know, where he can, and I think often in a, in a more thoughtful way than Tim pool. And maybe that's just, because Dave Smith's ideology is closer to mine than Tim Pool's is, but you know, I, I feel like he—he's very good at just almost off the top of his head, or at least it seems like being able to, you know, drop an hour podcast episode about some topic like pretty pretty quickly. And I—I I could never do that. Yeah, and also I will share an idea that now should I do this? Somebody could just take my idea. All right. Well, if anyone has the motivation to take this idea, this is not what I'm actually going to do next. But there is an idea for uh, a media project that I love. And it just the working title is System 1 and System 2 in the sort of Daniel Kenneman, like fast uh, jump to a conclusion, System 1 type thinking versus the more uh, intentional, thoughtful, logical, deliberate, um, uh, holding contradictory ideas and, and trying to, um, you know, reconcile them System 2 thinking. I love the idea of a podcast that's like System 1 and System 2, where you're given a piece of stimulus from the news and you react to it, immediately encountering it. And maybe it's like a a five-minute rant. And then you come back 24 hours later with a more thoughtful uh, discussion about it. Just to compare and contrast, like the, the, the speed of information today, most people are only able to do, to go back to, you know, an hour ago in this conversation, most people are only able to do the system one analysis and like, does this bolster my existing perspective? Is it useful to me or not? Or do I have to rage against it because it, um, runs contradictory to the meaning that I've made? And then to return to something like, say, 24 hours later with a more thoughtful analysis of it, but it's the same thing in in both assessments. Or like one is a reaction, the other one is a response, I guess would be the way to shape it. I think that would be really interesting, but you would need the right personality to do it, which I think I'm like in the ballpark of the right personality. Like I'm good. I'm pretty good at ranting. I'm pretty good at getting passionate about these things and then – yeah, I, I think I, I, I've certainly gotten compliments on my, my thoughtful assessments of things. So I think I could do it, but somebody could do that better than I could. And uh, I, I'm throwing that idea out there as a possible project for the future. <laughs> I, I, again, the future is very uncertain. I don't know um, if uh, – well – it's something else we could talk about, uh, like how do we how do we continue in an incre- increasingly censorious environment? What I'm thinking about doing next is fairly controversial. Uh, would put a lot of targets on me, and I'm still thinking very carefully about how I'm going to execute that safely. Uh, what platforms I'm going to use? What kind of support am I going to need? And um, you know what. What are some things I need to uh, take care of, let's say, before I start putting myself out there in a way that would uh, make me uh, a more desirable target for censorship? Uh, I've gracefully skated through all of the uh, the bans and the sh- you know the disappearing the disappearings that have happened. My YouTube channel is still up. My podcast is still getting downloaded. 
Um, you know, I'm still on Patreon and I'm, I'm staying there and I'm going to continue producing content for supporting listeners even after the show ends there, uh, and other platforms like that. I'm looking for new ones, but, uh, yeah, kind of looking out at the future of, um, because obviously that's not going to change and it's probably going to continue to accelerate and the net is probably going to expand, uh, which is another reason why I think um, I'd like to bring School Sucks to a close on my own terms, which I think I can do in the next 25 days. Uh, today, by the way, is the 12-year anniversary. I released the first episode of School Sucks on August 5th, 2009. So I'm very happy to be having this conversation with you today, CJ. Oh, nice. I didn't even realize it was the exact day. Yeah, yeah. So, and also happy birthday to my friend Joel Bine, who has been a listener almost right since the beginning and has implemented uh, most of our like personal development, uh, productivity, um, most most of like what we put on the show um, as far as content, Joel embraced and uh, made his life, um, uh, well, School Sucks was one of the many things that this very motivated and curious man used to uh, to make his life better. So I'm grateful to to be a part of that. But he's become a good friend, and it's his birthday today, too. So uh, oh, I should cool. acknowledge that. And I had a long conversation with him last night, we, him and uh, Wes Bertrand. We were on uh, a call for a couple hours uh, talking about some of these things. But okay, yeah, well, so, happy birthday to Joel. Yeah, absolutely. And he's been a guest on the show, and he actually works with uh, Isaac Morehouse and uh, Crash, that um, career launch platform now. So that's all That's all great stuff. But yeah, you know, I'm, um, I'm real rambly today, CJ. So thank you for your patience with my rambles. And uh, I've still got a little time left if you, if you have any other questions. Yeah, yeah, and a few few more things. Um, one is, you are going to be at the Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest in starting in I guess about a week and a half. I unfortunately will not be attending this year because of the timing of it. They um, are having it in the middle of August right now, which is literally the worst time of year for me to be traveling places and whatever because it's like right as work is starting back up for the fall semester. Um, other otherwise, I'd be looking forward to hanging out with you in person in a few days, and you know. I probably would have wanted to have this conversation in person in that case anyway. Oh, sure. Yeah. But, um, you know, side note, quick Midwest peace and Liberty fest plug anybody who's either in the Midwest area or who's able to make it there in about a week and a half, uh, look into it. MPLfest.org. It's a great time. I would definitely be going if it was being held, you know, earlier on in the summer, but, um, what have you got going on for the fest? Cause I know you're going to be, uh, one of the special guests. So, so what's going on? Well, I will be doing a what is called the School Sucks graduation, which is going to be uh, a little retrospective, a couple of stories, and then I'm going to announce what uh, I'm going to do next. So, I will probably uh, I'll do a discomfort zone with my friend Andrew while I'm there. I will. I would like to do a young listeners roundtable, including uh, a few people who were kind of like the the target demographic for when I started the show, they're like in that age group. So none of them have even reached the age of 30 yet. Uh, my friend Alex Bell, who's been listening since uh, I think he was about 16 or 17 years old. Uh, he'll be, he'll be a part of that. I haven't told him that yet, but I'll, I'll, I'll tell him today that I would like him to be a part of a, a round table like that. And, uh, 
By the way, speaking of uh, the target demographic and all that, do you know, is Nick Hazleton going to be there again? He is, and I will include him in that roundtable as well. That's cool. I always enjoy hanging out with Nick. As well as Danny McCarthy. Have you come across Danny McCarthy anywhere? Um, I've... I don't think I've ever met him in person, but I know who he is because I've, I've heard him on your show. Yes. Okay, great. I'm aware yeah. Of him, yeah. So he'll be there as well. And oh, nice. uh, uh, I, I think that would be a good group for, for that roundtable. So if they're hearing it on this show, uh, that is uh, an invite, but I will contact them individually and ask for sure. So uh, yeah, and then from there, I'm going to go to New Hampshire and probably do a couple more recordings there. And uh, yeah, that will be... That'll be how things wrap up for August. Cool. Well, I'm really glad that I got to snag you. I know you've been really busy lately uh, with putting out a whole bunch of episodes and, you know, getting ready to go to the Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest and working on kind of winding your show down and then kind of, you know, planning and getting future projects started back up. But I just wanted to make sure to tell you, because I think I kind of told you a while back, maybe at the first Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest we were at uh, together that your show really has meant a lot to me as it's meant a lot to a lot of people and uh, not saying that the guilt trip you into into winding it down you know I I actually think it's kind of cool that you're sort of almost doing like a breaking bad and sort of ending deliberately where you want to end but I didn't discover your show at the very beginning I can't say I've been a listener since 2009 but I was thinking back trying to figure out and I think I've been listening probably since either 2011 or 2012. So not the very beginning, but pretty far back. And I definitely haven't listened to every single episode you've ever done, but if I had to guess, I'd probably say, you know, probably close to three quarters of them I have listened to at some point. And your show was one of probably four or five podcasts I listened to for years before starting my own that was the most kind of like influential and inspirational in getting me to finally get off my ass and and start my own podcast going. And part of what inspired me about you and school sucks, you know, aside from the fact that I enjoyed the content and all that was the fact that before you started school sucks, you were just sort of a regular guy. In other words, you weren't like already somewhat famous or, or like a successful author or already some sort of media figure or whatever. You were just kind of like a regular guy. And that actually meant a lot to me because I was like, huh, here's this, this sort of regular guy who started this podcast and it's pretty good. And, you know, he, he's, he's doing pretty well with it and attracting an audience or whatever. I'm some guy too. <laughs> so like, yeah, I can, I can do something like that. So, you know, I wanted to make sure uh, before we finish talking today that, that I just, you know, reiterated all that and say, you know, on behalf of myself uh, and everybody else who's gotten value out of school sucks that we really appreciate it. And I've got a couple of fortune cookie um, fortunes that I've saved over the years. You know, most fortune cookies, they're just bland, uh, generic things. But every now and then I get one that says something that is actually relevant to something going on with me or whatever. And, you know, not that I actually believe like, oh, it's a supernatural thing that happened. It's just, oh, it's an interesting, funny coincidence. Mm, right. And 
one of the fortune cookies that I saved or fortune cookie tags that I saved was one I happened to get like right around the time, give or take, that I was starting Dangerous History. And the fortune simply says this, they will be grateful that you cared enough to make it. They will be grateful that you cared enough to make it. So thank you for doing School Sucks and for, you know, whatever else you've got going for the future. Well, that means the world to me to hear you say that. Um, and uh, I, I'm very honored by that. Um, you know, it reminds me, like, one of the first things that I committed to memory in my whole, like, uh, journey of discovery was Harry Brown saying, don't hold this stuff inside you. Like, because you don't know, like, say the thing, and then maybe the person you say it to has a way to um, to run with it in a way that you didn't think of or that you can't or that you don't, you, you know, you don't have the ability. Like, you say something, it resonates with somebody else. Or, you, you know, we're kind of broaden this to, like, you do something, um, somebody else recognizes something in it or it inspires them in some way, and then they do something that you couldn't have done and and the ripple effect of that. So it makes me very, very happy considering uh, your success with Dangerous History to say that, uh, you recognize me as an ordinary guy doing a thing, and it was part of your uh, motivation or inspiration to do a thing. That I love stories like that. I do hope to collect more of them because they really, really just uh, they make my day. So thank you so much, CJ. I really appreciate that. You're welcome, and it's been just great to talk to you again. And all the best in. Keep in touch, even with winding down school sucks. I'm sure we'll find reasons to uh, collaborate again in the future. I'm not going anywhere. There'll be plenty more of me. So, yes, there's going to be lots of opportunities for us to continue to collaborate. Awesome. Sounds good. All right. Thanks again, CJ.